So just a little recap from what we've been going over. Again, this is just a little um, sidebar study from our uh, uh, study in the book of 1 Corinthians as we look at the Reformed view of salvation, as we look at the doctrines of grace. Um, and last time we did look at limited atonement. Um, but before we get into that, recap a little bit, I, I want to just focus again on this, this, the topic as a whole. Because if you remember from the beginning, when we, when we first started looking at this, we noted that the, the argument, the debate centers around um, the issue between what we call monergism and synergism. Okay, those are fancy words. But monergism just means that God works alone in salvation. That He is the sovereign one who, who orchestrates salvation from beginning to end. Whereas the, the other view is synergism. That God works with us in our salvation. Now that sounds logical. Okay, because if you, if you look at how salvation is experienced in our lives, right? We, we, at some point in our lives, are sitting in a pew in a church somewhere, or maybe we're listening to a radio station or a podcast, or we're reading a book, or someone is talking to us across the table you know, in, a, in, a, you know, in supper or coffee or whatever, and they present the gospel to us, and we hear it for the first time, and it makes sense, and we believe, and then we, you know, we repent of our sins and we confess our faith in Christ and it sounds like I did this. I believed. I do these things. And in a very real sense, that is true. You are doing those things. But what happens is when you take this synergistic view, what you end up doing is you kind of rob God of His sovereign control over all things because it is your input that becomes sort of like the key to everything, right? You know, if, if God does His work, He does 99.9% of the work, but it is your 0.1% that becomes the crucial 0.1% in your salvation. It's like God can bring you up to the goal line, to use a football metaphor, but you got to take that ball and you got to crash through the line and you got to score the touchdown. So God could take you from one end of the field all the way to the other end of the field, but He can't take you across the goal line. That has to be something that you do. So it kind of feeds into our own human ego. It feeds into our own view of our own self-importance. We are the ones who have the critical mass there. That last oomph, if you will. You know, it may not be a lot, but it is the most important part of that salvation if you hold to a synergistic way of thinking of our salvation, that God works with us. Um, and that is precisely what the Arminian view boils down to when you boil it down to its, to its essence. Um, we hold the cards. We hold the, the final decision. Even falling away, you know, because they do not believe in perseverance of the saints. Even the falling away is us. <laughs> you know, it's like I came to faith and then I can lose my faith. Um, so it becomes, you know, we become sort of the key uh, element in all of this. 
But again, as we've been looking through these doctrines of grace, as we've been looking at each one of these these, um, doctrines, total depravity, unconditional election, and now limited atonement, if you hold to the idea of total depravity, if you hold to the idea that we are corrupt to our core, that we are radically corrupt, that because of the fall, the fall has affected everything in our being, our mind, our decisions, our actions, everything we do, everything we say, everything we think is affected by the fall. There is not one part of our being that is not affected by the fall. If you, if you can grasp that, then you see how incapable we are of even doing that 0.1%. Okay, or call it point oh 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 one percent, whatever you want to call it. Okay, if you if you recognize what it means to be, what total depravity means, that we are completely incapable of doing anything because we are dead in our sins, we are enslaved to our sin nature. Then you realize that God has to do the work. Okay, now in doing that work. Okay, this is where we get, we can kind of get tripped up a little bit. And we got a little, tri- you know, we could see how we can get tripped up when you look at Romans 9, particularly when you compare it to Romans 10. We can get kind of lost in the weeds because we, you know, we, we get so focused on our inability, so focused on our, on our enslavement to sin. But we have to realize that God not only chooses the end, which is our salvation. He chooses the means to those ends. Okay, that is what we see in Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Romans 9 looks at salvation from the viewpoint of God's sovereignty, how he chooses, right? He had to choose. He chose uh, Abraham. He then chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. And he did it because that was his sovereign pleasure to do so to show mercy on whom he will and to bypass those whom he will. Then you get to Romans 10, you realize, yeah, but Israel also failed because they failed to respond to the gospel. They have a responsibility to respond to the gospel. And we do have a responsibility, even in our totally depraved state, even in our state where we are incapable of responding, we are still responsible to respond which is why God needs to do a work in our hearts. So we get total depravity, which talks about our radical incapability, our inability to do and respond to the gospel. So God must elect us. And then we move on then to the nature of the atonement. Because we have sinned, we need to have those sins covered, which is what the atonement does. The atonement in the Old Testament was a covering. You would take the blood of the animals and it would get sprinkled on the top of the, of the mercy seat in the, in the ark, and that would cover the sins of the people. Well, they had to do that, though, every year. Every year they had to do that until Jesus came and offered the once-for-all perfect sacrifice for our sins. Now, when we looked at the atonement last week, we talked about how um, the, we, you know, we, the, the doctrine is called limited atonement. And, and I didn't like that name because it, it connotes something bad, right? Limited kind of means, you know, 
it, it's not good. It, it doesn't bring a good feeling to my mind to, to say something is limited. It, but in reality, we, everyone limits the atonement because if you don't limit the atonement, then you are a universalist. That means everyone is, is saved, and the Bible clearly doesn't teach that. So we, we talked how the reform limit the extent of the atonement. We limit how the atonement is applied. It's not applied to all people. It's applied to those whom God has elected. The Arminians limit the effect of the atonement. They say that Jesus died, but it didn't actually affect the atonement. It just made it possible. It made it available. Now we have to take that ball across the goal line. We have to receive this by faith, and then the atonement becomes effective to us. And one thing I didn't talk about last time that I want to talk about now in regards to the atonement is the nature of the atonement. Now, in the history of the church, there have been multiple theories on the atonement. And um, one, of the, one of the more popular ones is the atonement is an example. That was an early, early view of the atonement, that Jesus did what he did as an example for us to follow. And that falls woefully inadequate for an atonement. The other one is sort of a ransom theory of the atonement, that Jesus, when he died, paid a ransom price to Satan. The problem is, Satan does not have a hold over us. We, we are indebted to God for our sin. Our sin creates a debt between us and God, not us and Satan. So paying a ransom to Satan does no good. The view of the atonement that has sort of, has sort of taken hold and has become sort of the primary orthodox view is that of what we call penal substitutionaries or penal substitution, okay? In other words, Jesus substitutes himself for his people and takes the punishment of God for us. So Jesus stands in our place, okay? So if you want to have the gospel in four words, it would be Jesus in my place. That's the gospel in four words. Jesus takes the punishment of God for me. He takes the punishment of God for you if you are the elect, if you are one who has been chosen by God to, to, be, uh, to be elected, then Jesus will then die in your place. So Jesus dies for a particular people. Now, if you take the Arminian view, Jesus dies for no one in particular. He just dies to make salvation and atonement available. And not, but not available to anybody in particular because you have to activate that through your faith. You have to activate that by your own effort to believe and then you, then you get the atonement. So just by the nature of the atonement, the idea that we call it penal substitutionary atonement indicates that Jesus is dying for a particular people. And that's why I had you turn back to uh, John chapter 10. Because near the end of that chapter, starting in verse, well, we can look at verse 27, but we can go up a little bit before that. Verse 25, Jesus answers them, that is the Pharisees, and says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And of course, when Jesus says that, the Jews are enraged, and they begin to pick up stones to stone Jesus because he says he and God are one. He and his Father are one. But again, notice here in this passage how Jesus talks about having sheep. We looked at this last week. We looked at it earlier verses in John chapter 10. But Jesus talks about how he has particular sheep. These are particular sheep that the Father has given him. These are particular sheep that Jesus gives eternal life to. These are particular sheep that cannot be snatched out of Jesus' hand. And they're also particular sheep that cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. So Jesus is holding on to those sheep. The Father is holding on to those sheep. No one can snatch these sheep out of the hand of Jesus. And that's why he says, I and my Father are one. We are working. We are not only equal, but we're also working in the same purpose here. Our purpose is one. That is the salvation of the sheep to give them eternal life. They shall not perish. So Jesus is dying for a particular group of people. And that's why he's, you know, he puts himself in their place. His punishment, his death, is one that is done in substitution. Just like the, just like the, the goat in the Old Testament sacrifice. When the priest would lay his hands upon the goat, it was symbolic of transferring the sins of the people onto the head of that goat. And then that goat would be sent off into the wilderness. That was the scapegoat. But you know that goat is standing in our place. The same thing with the other goat that was slaughtered. That goat stands in our place. It is the reason why the people of God can receive the atonement because the goat was sacrificed and killed in our place, which is why then God can be gracious to us through the, through the means of that Old Testament sacrificial system. So I, I belabor this because the atonement is very important, and it's very important to understand the substitutionary nature of the atonement, that Jesus is dying in place of a particular group of people. Versus the other view, which says that Jesus is not dying for anyone in particular. That would make this passage then kind of irrelevant, right? I, die, I don't die for my sheep. I don't give my sheep eternal life. I, I give some sheep somewhere eternal life. I don't, I don't even know who they are. I just know at some point some sheep are going to come along, they're going to hear my voice, and then they'll get eternal life, and they won't be able to be snatched out of my hand. No, Jesus knows his sheep. That's the whole point of the Good Shepherd passage. He calls his sheep by name. He knows them by name. They hear his voice and they listen to him. Okay. Moving on now to our fourth point. Irresistible grace. Another one which is an unfortunate name. Um, I agree with the late, great R.C. Sproul. Most of these titles for the Petals of Tulip are unfortunate names. 
Um, but we have to go with what we're, we're given, right? We, we work with what we're given. But irresistible grace, okay, let's first look at what it means. Irresistible grace means that the Holy Spirit sovereignly and effectually applies salvation to the elect. Irresistible grace means that the Holy Spirit sovereignly and effectually applies salvation to the elect. And again, if you think about how we've been looking at these um, petals in tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, now irresistible grace, there's a logical flow from, from these. Irresistible grace flows logically from the fact that we are totally depraved, that we are corrupt and radically corrupt to the core of our being because if we are dead in sins and trespasses, and we're going to look at this in a little bit, if we are dead in sins and trespasses, how do we get out of that state? We have to be born again, right? And that is done through the Holy Spirit irresistibly calling us, irresistibly bringing us into the fold. Now, what does irresistible mean? Because when you hear that word irresistible, you think, okay, well, it's, it cannot be resisted. But you look in the world around you, you see how the gospel goes forth, and you see people resisting it all the time, right? The gospel is not always believed whenever it is presented by everyone. So some people do, in fact, resist. It means, so irresistible, in this context here of irresistible grace, means that when the Holy Spirit regenerates someone and draws them to Christ, He does so in a way that cannot be resisted. Which is why a better way to look at this is, called, is to call this doctrine effectual calling. Effectual calling. The call that the Spirit uses is effectual. So now you can t uh, take your uh, Bibles and turn to Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, I'm going to look at verses 10 and 11. If you are prone to underline things in your Bible, verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 55 should be underlined. If you don't like it when other people don't underline in their Bibles, then you can turn to your neighbor and underline it in their Bible too. Um, if you're one of those that doesn't like to write in your Bibles, well, what can I say? But Isaiah 55, starting in verse 10, the prophet says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful. God's word is effectual. When God's word goes forth, it will not return void. When God's word goes forth, it will accomplish the work that it is intended to accomplish, whatever that work is. Now, we've looked at this before. The gospel is both, as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, it is both the aroma of life and the aroma of death. 
right? That gospel goes forth. If it, does, if it is not received, it is not, doesn't mean that the, the word is ineffectual. It is doing exactly what it is intended to do. The gospel can harden a heart. The gospel can, take, can go forth and it can confirm somebody in their unbelief as they reject and continue to reject and harden their hearts. The gospel can also go forth and bring new birth and bring someone to life and, and, and call them into the family of God and they will respond favorably. Because now you can flip over to Ezekiel 36. So just a few chapters over to the right. By a few, I mean like quite a few. Because <laughs> you got to go through Jeremiah and then into, I think, Lamentations, then Ezekiel. Yeah. But in Ezekiel 36, here um, the prophet is talking about uh, the new covenant, Israel's renewal, the promise of how Israel will be restored. And we see here the prophet speaks in verse, uh, let's start in verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. So the, he's talking about how the Jews have been scattered because of their apostasy and unbelief, and now he's going to regather them. Um, 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your, all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. So here, the prophet, through the prophet Ezekiel, he is giving the promise that a time will come when God will no longer govern His people through the Old Covenant but will sprinkle clean water on them. Will cause them to be reborn. He will take out the heart of stone that is in them, the dead heart that doesn't beat, and He will give them a new fleshly heart that beats and, 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 and follows after God. And they will, this, then He will cause us to walk in His statutes. This is a picture of irresistible grace. As God calls the dead sinner out of the world into the kingdom of God through the working, the effectual working of the Holy Spirit. Because you can then just flip over one page or whatever to chapter 37, and there you have another image of this, the valley of the dry bones. You've got this valley here of dry bones that is dead. It is representative of the house of Israel and the house of Judah that is dead, but then... Uh, God tells the prophet to speak to the bones. The Word of God goes forth. It is effectual. It will accomplish everything that it is set out to do. And when He speaks to the bones, the bones start to stir. They start to grow. They start to reunite. They start to grow sinews again. All of these things happen because 
The Word of God is going forth and speaking to the dead bones in a way that is effectual. It accomplishes what it is set out to do. Now, when we talk about irresistible grace, there's the difference between the external call and the internal call. Okay, The external call and the internal call. The external call is just the general gospel call that goes forth. Right, The Great Commission commands us as the church to go forth into all nations and to make disciples by teaching them everything Jesus commanded us to teach them and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the gospel goes forth through the Great Commission, and that is the general call. We go forth, we, as Paul says in the book of Acts, God commands all men everywhere to repent. And then you see, in the, you know, even as the book of Acts unfolds, how the, the, the apostles go forth, and they go from city to city to city, they call, they, they preach the gospel, and some people believe, and some people don't believe. And the people who believe are excited and they're on fire for the Lord. The people who don't believe get angry and they start to persecute the believers. Now, that general call is what goes forth when when the apostles preach and proclaim the gospel. That is the general call to go forth. Now, the internal call is how the Spirit will take the external call and apply it to the heart of a dead believer like we saw when Ezekiel speaks to the dry bones, or as we saw in Ezekiel when he says, I will give you a new heart. So the internal call is effectual. That is the one where God, as the, as the gospel is being proclaimed through the ministry of the gospel, as the gospel is being proclaimed, the Spirit will take that gospel message and use it to bring new birth into the heart of a dead believer. So it is, that is the... The internal call. The internal call is what is irresistible. The external call is actually quite resistible. <laughs> because again, when the gospel goes forth, people resist it quite often. They resist it. So now I would say uh, turn to John chapter 6. And we've looked at this as we've been preaching through the Gospel of John last year. And we spent quite a few sermons in John chapter 6. But just some context, right? So John chapter 6 starts off um, with the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus, you know, he's being followed by this great crowd and he feeds the 5,000, and then after the feeding of the 5,000, he walks across the sea to the other side, and then the next day, the people that were fed realize Jesus isn't where he was yesterday, so they go to the other side, they follow Jesus, and then in, starting in verse 22 to the end of the chapter is this long discourse in which the people are looking for more bread. Okay? Jesus fed them, and they wanted Jesus, they wanted to make him king because he could provide bread, right? Everyone likes a king who can provide bread. So they're like, Jesus, feed us again. We're, we're here for a free lunch again. And 
Jesus says, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So Jesus is like, you're, you're following for the wrong reasons, right? You're looking for earthly bread and you're not realizing what the bread is a sign of. Because God fed the Israelites in the desert with the manna that came from heaven. Then he goes on to say that I am that bread. I am that bread from heaven that you eat and you will no longer thirst or hunger for righteousness. So that's just the context. Now, a couple of specific verses. In verse 37 of that chapter, I'll just start in verse 35 where he talks about being the bread of life. So Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Then verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come from heaven, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all Uh, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, in that, I wanted to focus on verse 37, because here we see Jesus says to the crowd, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Okay. All. (laughs) What's included in all? (laughs) Everything, right? (laughs) All that the Father gives to me. So that's that's what qualifies the all. Of everyone that the Father gives to Jesus, that one will come to Jesus. That's what he says here. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. Alright? That's the irresistible grace part of that verse. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and they'll come to me when, in the course of time, through the providence of God, through the sovereignty of God, when that gospel message goes forth and it ignites the new birth in that heart, that person will come to Christ if he is one that was given to Christ by the Father. All that the Father comes, uh, gives to me will come to me. And then just to show you that there's also the human responsibility, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So on the, other, the flip side of that is that you still have to come to Jesus, right? You still have to come to Jesus, and the one who does come to Jesus will not be cast out by Jesus because Jesus knows that this is one who has been given to him. And then just a little further on in verse 44, again, uh, just a little context. I'll start in verse 41. And then the Jews complained about him because they're always complaining about him. He's, I think they have like PhDs in complaining um, if there is such a thing. I mean, what the heck, they have PhDs in the weirdest things. Why not complaining? But then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? So now they're they're sort of dismissing Jesus because they know who his father is. It's like, don't we know his father? Isn't he the son of that carpenter? Don't we know his family? It's like, how special can this guy be? 
right? I mean, we know his family, so therefore we know everything we need to know about him. And Jesus answered, verse 43, and said to them, Do not murmur amongst yourselves. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, again, you're going to have one of those sort of universal conditions here, right? Whereas before, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Here you see, no one can come unless. So who can come? (laughs) No one can come unless. (laughs) Okay, there is a condition there. The unless is that the Father draws him. Again, the idea of irresistible grace. The Father has to draw you out of your spiritual deadness, out of your spiritual slavery. He's got to give you new life. He's got to give you spiritual freedom. He's got to draw you out. That word there, draw, can actually be translated as drag. Okay, He has to drag you out. <laughs> okay, So no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And the one who does come Jesus will raise up at the last day. So here you see this need for irresistible grace, this idea that unless God does something in us, we will not come to Christ. You can flip over back to John chapter 3, the great passage on the new birth. And here in this one, of course, um, we see Jesus' encounter with the Pharisee Nicodemus as Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. I always like to emphasize that because it seems like the night is not just the time of day. But he also comes because his heart is darkened. Right? He comes at night because that's kind of the condition of his soul. He comes to Jesus at night. He starts to butter him up. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. That was the first words that Nicodemus spoke to Jesus. And then Jesus says to Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that's an interesting reply (laughs) to what Nicodemus said. Nicodemus just comes and he's just sort of being gracious and kind, giving some, you know, some compliments to Jesus. And then Jesus replies by answering a question that hadn't been asked yet. Now, the question that's on Nicodemus' heart, of course, and the reason why he's coming to Jesus is, how can I get to the kingdom of heaven? That's, that's the implied question that is not asked here. Because as a Pharisee, I'm sure he realizes I've done, you know, I, I do everything that the law requires me to do. And I'm an expert in the law. That's what we find out later in John chapter 3. He is the teacher of Israel. So he is, he is a very high up position in the, uh, the culture there. So he's very learned. He's one of the very smart people. He knows the law. And he's probably realizing in his own heart, is it enough? Is it enough? Maybe even now the Spirit is sort of like working on him trying to till that hard ground of his heart. So he's like, is, is my law-keeping enough? So he comes to Jesus, and Jesus tells him, look, you want to see the kingdom of God? You can't see it unless you're born again. Of course, then Nicodemus is like, 
what do you mean? How can a man be born again when he's old? This seems like impossible. He's like, yeah, ding, ding, ding. It is impossible. <laughs> you cannot do that. You know, how much control did you have over your natural birth? Zero control, right? You just, you just came out, <laughs> right? You, now, I know people like to say, well, I guess he just decided he wanted to come out now or he doesn't want to come out yet. No, no. You have no control over your own birth, okay? And you have no control over your spiritual birth. It is something that is done to you. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he goes on in verse 5 and restates the same thing using different words. Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's a reference to that passage in Ezekiel we read where he, I will sprinkle you with clean water and give you a new heart. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the, the, the only way you know who is born of the Spirit is by the results, right? You don't see the wind but you know the wind is there when you look at the trees and you see the branches swaying in the wind or you see the leaves blowing on the ground. Same thing with the Spirit of God working in the people of God. You don't know someone is born again until you see the result of that. The result of that. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of this world is of this world. That which is born of the Spirit is born of the Spirit. So unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the metaphor here of birth suggests that we have no control over that. So the same thing, just like I said, is you have no control over your physical birth. You have no control over your spiritual birth. This is regeneration. The Spirit must come and do that work in your heart. The Spirit must come and give you the new heart, give you the new birth, bring regeneration. Think of it this way. I know we've been flipping around. You don't need to flip there. But in John chapter 11, what happens in John chapter 11? That's John chapter 4. Lazarus, right. It's the raising of Lazarus. It's a long chapter. It's a beautiful chapter, right? But at the point when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he sits there, or stands there, and says, Lazarus, come out. Right? Now, if he had said, come out, <laughs> without giving a name, I imagine all the dead people would have gotten up and started walking out. It's like, which one did you have in mind, Jesus? Yeah, we'll just all come out. He calls Lazarus specifically. He gives in a sense, that is the idea of the new birth in that Jesus calls forth a dead man. The power of the Son of God, of His Word, goes forth and brings the new life into an actual, literal, dead person and brings him to life. That is how, when the Word of God goes forth spiritually, it calls the dead people to life. Now you can flip over to Ephesians 2. So just as Lazarus was dead in the tomb for four days and needed to be 
resuscitated by the powerful Word of God, so too the spiritually dead person needs to be made alive. That's what you see in Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God. It's my favorite two words in the Bible. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the whole point of Ephesians 2 is to show how what he talks about in Ephesians 1 happens in what I like to call real time or in space and time. Because Ephesians 1 looks at our salvation in eternity past, how we were chosen before the foundation of the world, redeemed by the blood of God, uh, Christ, uh, sealed by the Spirit. And now in chapter 2 he talks about how all of us are born in our sins and trespasses. But then in verse 4, but God. But God. Not but God in us. <laughs> but God, period. Causes us to... Uh, he makes us alive together in Christ. And he raises us up together. And He does this because of His great love with which He loved us. Because we're spiritually dead, God has to make us alive together with Christ. An irresistible grace, then, is the bringing to spiritual life of a spiritual dead person. Again, this is an, a sovereign act of God and incapable of being resisted. I mean, again, going back to Lazarus, how much choice did Lazarus have to come out of the tomb? Apparently, zero choice. <laughs> right? Jesus calls him and he comes forth. You know, it wasn't like, like yeah, I kind of like my tomb. It's kind of warm in here and... You know, and I'm, I'm all snug as a bug in a rug here inside my little, you know, grave clothes. It's like, I'd rather not come out. The world's a nasty place. Don't make me come out again. No. Jesus calls him forth, and Lazarus comes forth. So that is irresistible grace. It is the, the, the working of the Holy Spirit, how uh, the Holy Spirit sovereignly and effectually applies salvation to the elect. And it flows from the fact that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. It is effectual. God's word goes forth. It accomplishes what it wants to do. And we need this grace. We need this irresistible grace, this conversion, this um, bringing, this regeneration, this bringing us to life in order to, to uh, see the kingdom of God. Now the time that's left, I'm going to cover briefly some objections. And we'll probably recap some of this again next week, Lord willing. 
one of the first objections that we get to this is the objection of free will. Because irresistible grace sounds like a violation of my free will. Right? I should have the free will choice to make this choice. But God is, seems like he's overriding my free will in order to do this. So what about my free will? To which I reply, we need to define our terms. What do you mean by free will? Okay, do you mean by free will that our, our wills are free to choose whatever we desire? Then yes, we have free will. But, you have to understand, the fall affects everything. It affects the human will as well. So the idea of our free will is we are free to choose whatever we desire. The problem is because of the fall, what do we desire? Three uh, one small three-letter word. Begins with S and ends with N. Sin, Okay. Because of the fall, that's what we desire. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. That's all we desire to do is to sin, is to rebel, is to work against God. Again, you know, Lazarus didn't have a free will in the sense that he could choose God. He could choose to come out of the grave. He had to be called out of the grave. But we who are dead in our sins and trespasses do not have the will or the capacity to choose God. It has to be overridden in that sense. It has to be reborn in that sense. The only way we will choose God is if God first chooses us. That's what we see in you know, 1 John 4.19, right? We love God because he first loved us. So our will is not being violated. Our will is, is enslaved. Our will is dead we are not free to choose whatever we want. We are free to choose what our desires are, and our desires are to sin. Well, then what about the free offer of the gospel? How can we offer the gospel to all people if only the elect who are irresistibly drawn will respond? Well, first, we offer the gospel to all because that's what we're commanded to do. <laughs> right? Again, the Great Commission does not say go into all the world and call forth only the elect. It says, go into the world and make disciples. How do I know who the elect are? Well, you don't know who the elect are. That's the, and that's, that's liberating, <laughs> if you think about it, right? Because I don't have to worry about who hears the gospel. It just goes forth. I let God worry about who the elect are. I just proclaim the gospel to whoever will hear and whoever will listen, so the gospel, the, the gospel is we're commanded, first of all, to, to present the gospel to any and all. Because, again, that is the means by which God will use to bring the elect to him. He will use that as his means. But again, secondly, we don't know who the elect are who will respond favorably. Thus, we preach the gospel to all, knowing that the Holy Spirit will draw those whom God has chosen. Again, that's, that's not our, our, our task. Our task is not to know who the elect are. Our task is just to present the gospel and let God worry about it. That's how I like to look at it. I don't worry about who the elect are. I just preach the gospel. I let God worry about who the elect are. That's, that's, his, that's his problem. And he's capable of, of taking care of that. All right, we'll stop here.